0: Hi everyone, I think we're ready to start. Uh, Thank you so much for your patience. This lecture theatre was booked tonight, but there doesn't seem to be anything in here, so it's great that we could quickly move in. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas, which is the University of Sydney's public lecture series. It's wonderful to have you all here this evening. Um, The format for tonight is a 20-minute presentation by each of our speakers, and then we'll open up the floor for a question and answer session I've got a handheld mic which I'll pass around for questions. We are recording the whole of the event for podcast on the university website and it is being filmed tonight by Slow TV. So it is very important that you do use the uh, microphone for your questions and speak into it as uh, clearly and loudly as you can. Um, And the the usual things, try and keep your questions nice and short. I think there'll be quite a lot of questions for our speakers tonight, so we want to make sure everyone gets a turn. That's it from me. Um, I'd now like to introduce uh, Dr. Claire Hooker from the University of Sydney, who is the organiser of tonight's event and who will introduce our speakers. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Meredith, and um, thank you all for coming. You uh, did exceed our expectations as well as the capacity of what was available um, on room bookings. Before we begin, can I do that essential thing because I always need this reminder? Cell phones off if you've forgotten. (laughs) Thank you very much. Um, Okay, I'm from, my name is Claire Hooker. I am the director of the Medical Humanities Program, which runs here at the University of Sydney. It runs from the Centre for Values, Ethics and Law in Medicine, um, one of the most poorly named departments, (laughs) in uh, clumsily named departments. Uh, But the Medical Humanities Program exists to explore and to foster what we might broadly describe as the human side of medicine, the emotional, existential aspects of health and illness, which invariably occur and are always experienced as some of the most difficult and challenging aspects of getting ill and some of the most important and enriching aspects of becoming well again. Uh, And we run a variety of uh, these sorts of series, lecture series, uh, research uh, projects, uh, teaching courses and so on that explore things like literature and medicine, medicine and music, narrative competence and so on. And may I direct you to our website or that of the department if you'd like to know more and I will be here a little bit after the event. Because of our move, um, we've started about 15 minutes late, so with your permission and approval, we'll end up running about 15 minutes over time, but we'll try and keep um, nicely and tightly to the schedule that we have here. And now I would like to introduce uh, the first of our speakers and the reason for tonight's event. We are very lucky to have visiting us in Australia, Dr Esther Sternberg. Uh, Dr. Sternberg is internationally renowned for a lifelong career uh, in the the, uh, science of the mind and body connection. For those of you uh, who are in the know, she is a neuroendocrine immunologist. She connects all of those different uh, sciences. Um, She has uh, led a a large number of collaborative initiatives in mind, body, stress, wellness, uh, and the environment relationships. And she has two books. I think both of them are probably on sale just outside in the foyer, uh, one called Healing Spaces, published very recently, uh, which is the science connecting place and well-being. And her earlier book, uh, The Balance Within the Science Connecting Health and the Emotions, um, is the focus of tonight's discussion um, Dr. Sternberg's many honours include recognition from the National Library of Medicine, you can go check yourself this out for yourself um, on the internet very swiftly, um, as one of 300 women physicians who have changed the face of medicine. And uh, she's also been the leader of an institute in the National Institutes of Health. So thank you and welcome Dr. Sternberg.
2: Thank you so much. It's really a great pleasure to be here in Sydney. This is the end of a whirlwind tour for me across Australia uh, talking about my book Healing Spaces. Some of you may, may have been at the uh, uh, Museum of Contemporary Art down at the harbor last night where I had the pleasure of speaking at the uh, being hosted by the Arts and Health Foundation that has coordinated much of my, uh, my trip through Australia. It's been a real thrill and it's a thrill to be here uh, in, in Sydney. So thank you to all the organizers, all the hosts at the University of Sydney. Um, I am not going to be speaking on healing spaces, the science of place and well-being. Uh, I did that talk last night and again just an hour ago. Uh, so uh, I am going to be talking about the brain-immune connection, the balance within. Uh, That's the science of the mind-body connection. I'll start by asking you this question. How many of you believe that stress can make you sick? Very enthusiastic 100%. (laughs) Um, When I first had the courage to ask this question about 1995 to an audience of physicians and scientists, about a third of the audience put up their hands very gingerly and then put their hands behind their backs so their colleagues wouldn't notice that they believed in such a fringy notion. Um, I am happy to report that in fact, through the language of science, we have come out to understand, and not only believe that stress can make you sick, we, the physicians and scientists, but how that works. And we're even at the point of understanding how salubrious activities, such as meditation, prayer, uh, belief, uh, can make you well. So that's what I'm gonna focus on uh, in, this, in this 20 minutes. We know that there is a rich network of ways in which the brain and the immune system talk to each other. The brain sends signals to the immune system, and the immune system sends signals back. Uh, I'm going to focus mostly on how the brain affects the immune system through the brain's hormonal stress response and neural stress response. So what happens when you're stressed is you pump out stress hormones uh, from what's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. That results in cortisol being released, and that suppresses your immune system's ability to fight uh, disease. There's also communications through a nerve that we call the vagus nerve that regulates what we call the relaxation response, and there's uh, communications through the adrenaline-like part of the nervous system. And there's also nerves that course through all parts of your body, the peripheral nervous system, that go to sites of inflammation that help you feel pain, and those nerve chemicals also change how the immune system functions. But to understand how stress can affect the immune system, first of all, we have to understand what stress is. Uh, so how many of you believe that there's such a thing as stress? Again, yeah, 100%. Preaching to the choir here. Okay, stress has many parts. This is the front page of the New York Times from the day in October a couple of years ago when all the stock markets were falling except the ones in Australia, I gather. <laughs> <laughs> they're very fortunate here. Um, you were quite protected. You notice that the there are pictures of faces of stock traders around the world, Asia, Europe, the Americas, and you know that these people are stressed. The reason you know they're stressed is you are watching their physiological stress response. You know that they feel sweating. You know they feel anxious. You know that their heart is beating fast. You know they want to run to the bathroom. These are all aspects of the physiological stress response. With permission, I'll read you a brief paragraph from my book Healing Spaces, um, the chapter is called Mazes and Labyrinths. And the reason I'm going to read this to you is because I had the privilege when I was in Melbourne, being, of being at Ormond College at the University of Melbourne. And when I walked into High Table and the students were wearing their black robes and the faculty walked through like Moses walking between them, <laughs> the, the water parting, uh, I sat at High Table and I looked out over the sea of young people and I was very disappointed that they weren't flying about and casting spells because I felt like I was in Harry Potter. (laughs) So I'll just read this to you. When Harry Potter enters the maze during the Triwizard Tournament in the Goblet of Fire, his nerves, his self-confidence and his senses are immediately put under enormous strain. The towering hedges cast black shadows across the path. They were so tall and thick that the sound of the surrounding crowd was silenced. Uh, we understand how he feels. He feels uh, anxious. He feels sweaty. We understand how he feels because we have all experienced this stress response. This is a perfect example of a stress response, uh, although we've never been in an enchanted maze, because we've all fest- felt stress ourselves. We react to a stressful event, an initiating event, the bad thing that happens. In this case, I and mean, in a picture from the New York Times, it was all the stock markets falling. There has to be something very important that happens between the bad thing that happens, that initiating event, and that physiological stress response, and that's perception. If these stock traders had all their uh, money in gold bullion under their mattresses, they would not be feeling stressed. So you have to have perception in order to have a reaction to that initiated event. You can't do anything about bad things that happen, that's life. You can't do a whole lot, although I'll show you now that you can do some things about your physiological stress response, but what you can really change is that perception in the middle, like the meat and the sandwich. If that response goes on too long, that's when you get sick. That's when it has an effect. So, in order to understand how stress can make you sick, you have to understand something about the, uh, the, the way the stress response uh, works. So stress and your stress response deter- is determined by dose, the dose of that stressor, the pattern of the stressor, the duration of that stressor, and gender. The fight or flight response, which is the typical stress response, was described uh, hundred years ago by Walter B. Cannon in males, in male animals and male humans. Shelley Taylor at the University of California, Los Angeles has coined the word, tend and befriend. Because whether you're a fruit fly or a mouse, a cat, a rat, a human, uh, females have a different stress response than males. If we don't have, uh, it's not that we don't have a fight-or-flight response, but we do tend, take care of, and socialize. And that helps buffer the stress response. What about dose of stress? A single stressful event is unlikely to make you sick. Multiple stressful events where there's time to recover are also unlikely to make you sick. It's multiple stressful events that come fast upon each other or chronic stress that will make you sick. Chronic stress such as chronic caregivers of Alzheimer's patients, these are the kinds of conditions that have been studied. And what happens is during those periods you are releasing a lot of those stress hormones and nerve chemicals that tune down your immune system's ability to fight disease. So when you're stressed, you're pumping out the brain stress hormone, CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone, from the brain's stress center, the hypothalamus. That makes your pituitary gland pump out ACTH, another hormone, and that goes to your adrenal glands that sit on top of your kidneys, and that makes your adrenals pump out cortisol. If any of you have used cortisone cream for a poison ivy rash, or cortisone nose spray for rhinitis or allergic asthma, you will know that cortisone is one of the most potent anti-inflammatory drugs that your body makes. So what happens when you are stressed is you're giving yourself a shot of an anti-inflammatory hormone, an anti-inflammatory hormone that tunes down your immune system's ability to fight disease. If then you're exposed to a flu bug, the the bug wins because the immune system is sluggish and less able to fight that bug off. So think of it as a balance. You need your stress response, we all need our stress response again, whether you're a fruit fly or a salmon or a cat or a rat or a mouse or a human, because that's what gets you out of danger. It gives you focused attention, vigilance, and the ability to flee. But if it goes on too long, you will have a number of different kinds of conditions. You'll have more frequent and more severe viral infections, like the chronic, like the common cold, or uh, the flu. You'll have less of a take rate to vaccine. So if you're a car- chronic caregiver of an Alzheimer's patient, you go out and get a flu shot in order to protect yourself, in order to protect your loved ones. You will be less protected because your immune system isn't able to mount an effective response to that vaccine. If you're exposed to the flu, then you're going to be getting more severe or more frequent infections. You're not doing anybody a service by running yourself into the ground uh, and not Coping with and finding ways to deal with that stress and I'll talk about how that can be done uh, there's also prolonged wound healing in chronic stress there's also uh, speeding of cancer growth certain cancers like ovarian cancer and there's speeding of chromosomal aging uh, I want to emphasize here that stress chronic stress does not cause cancer your genes and environmental factors cause cancer stress does not cause the flu The flu bug causes the flu, but stress reduces your ability of your immune system to fight those insults and to repair the tissues. Um, Chromosomal aging is an interesting one, and in fact, we were just talking in more detail earlier that the Nobel Prize was awarded last year to an Australian, uh, Elizabeth Blackburn, who uh, was from Sydney and trained, I gather, in Melbourne. I thought of her as an American, but I guess she's your native daughter uh, and she discovered the, uh, the those the, the chromosomal aging uh, factor telomerase so uh, there's another feature of the stress response that's important in learning how to uh, control stress or, or cope with stress and that's a thing that's called the inverted u-shaped curve of the stress response so I want you to imagine a rainbow here over the stage if I were at this end I'd be totally relaxed, I'd be lying down, I'd be asleep, I'd be reading a book, I'd be, my stress response would not be turned on, the organizers would be stressed, you'd be bored. <laughs> so i have to turn my stress response on to peak in order to be able to perform at peak, because it's those stress hormones and nerve chemicals that give me the energy and the focused attention to be able to do my job, to talk to you here. The problem occurs if that stress response is turned on too much, and I fall over the edge of the rainbow. That's extreme stress, and that's when one would freeze in front of the audience, you choke up, you're unable to do your job. We know something about computers that we do not know about ourselves that helps to deal with this. So, there's a researcher in uh, Philadelphia, Gary Aston Jones, who's done these studies in primates that were performing a task, and he put in uh, nerve, he was recording from single nerve cells in the part of the brain that controls the adrenaline like part of the stress response, the locus ceruleus. And when these animals were inattentive and half asleep, there was very little nerve cell. Each of these little blips is a, is a single nerve cell firing. So there was very little firing across the board in this part of the brain. When they were performing at peak, they had uh, a lot of firing of a single nerve cell or just a few nerve cells. When they became stressed or anxious and were no longer performing at peak, were unable to perform, all of the nerve cells in that part of the brain started to fire madly. So we know this about our computers, it's like email spam. If you receive one or two emails, it's useful. If you receive ten emails, it's useful. If you get email spam, what happens to your email box? It shuts you it just it freezes it stops you have to shut down clear it out and reboot in order to get yourself back to the your email back to the peak performance and we need to do that with ourselves as well to ma- maintain our stress response and our performance at peak so how do you do this how do you turn bad stress into good stress how many of you believe that you can do that you can turn, see, it's not 100%. It's interesting. It depends on the audiences I speak to. Well, I'll tell you, you can learn to control your stress response and make it work for you. So I'm going to show you a picture of a uh, profession that is specifically trained to do this. Most of us are not specifically trained to do this, but there are professions that are trained to control their stress response and help make it work for them. This is a picture of a, an F 14 aircraft. Uh, uh, Jet fighter flying sideways off the side of an aircraft carrier in the Sea of Japan. Uh, it's an American plane. I got this uh, Actually, the way I got it is, I, I hate to fly. I get air sick and I, I'm no longer anxious. I fly a lot. Uh, but I was sitting in my seat uh, taking off uh, from Washington to Detroit, to Detroit, and I was looking for the air sickness bag, and as I was looking, I was getting more and more anxious, and the very kind gentleman to my left handed me his air sickness bag and said, "Don't worry, I'm a pilot." And I said, great. It's always a big relief to be sitting next to pilots. We get to 35,000 feet. And he says, but if anything happened to this 737, I couldn't do anything about it. (laughs) He said, now you tell me. Um, And I said, why? And he said, well, because I fly F-14s off of aircraft carriers. So we got into this conversation as to whether when he's landing his little uh, plane in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm on the Sea of Japan down on the aircraft carrier down below, whether he feels stressed. And he said "Well, we feel all those things we feel our heart beating fast and we feel sweaty but we know that that's a signal that we need to change course we make our stress response work for us so it's a good thing to recognize when you're stressed that it's your brain telling you you need to change course so why is this whether you feel stressed or stimulated depends upon the ratio of control to demand that you have over the situation so if you have a high demand Low control situation like everybody else in that picture other than the pilot. Uh, there's people standing on the bridge of the uh, aircraft carrier. There's two little uh, helmets there. You can see one is the pilot. The other is a radar officer, uh, sort of like a top gun. And uh, everybody in that picture is stressed except for the pilot. And why is that? Because he's in control. Uh, if you're in a high control, high demand situation, you feel stimulated. It's your stress response that's working for you and making you feel excited and positive. So, um, I'm at, this is the, the story with the telomerase. When you're chronically stressed, that positive effect of the acute stress response of getting you out of danger uh, gives you those uh, conditions that I described before. And this is just uh, some data in case you don't believe me. Believe, trust me, I'm a scientist, but I thought I'd show you some data. Um, that the, <coughs> When you are chronically stressed, the ends of chromosomes, your ends of chromosomes can look 10 to 17 years older than your biological age. If that's not a reason to do something about chronic stress, I don't know what is. So what happens when you're stressed? You're stressed, you're pumping out these stress hormones and neurochemicals, and what can you do about it? You can do a whole lot of activities, salubrious activities, that we now know have a biology, they have a neurobiology, they have an effect on the immune system. That includes meditation, uh, exercise, tai chi, yoga. Tai chi and yoga are combinations of exercise, gentle exercise, and meditation. Prayer is included in this, in this grouping. Uh, and the placebo effect, the belief that anything will heal. That's what the placebo effect is. The belief that either seeing a doctor will heal, taking a medication will heal, the belief in in a higher power. If you have that belief, there are changes in the brain that occur that actually are quite similar to the changes that occur during meditation uh, and prayer and, uh, and exercise. And all of these induce a positive state. They cause a reduction in that stress response. And they kick in what's called the relaxation response, another set of nerves, the vagus nerve, a nerve that wanders, vagus means wanderer, wanders through the heart, the lungs, the liver, the gut. And it's like putting a brake on that stress response. The stress response is putting your foot on the gas and running, driving 120 miles an hour down the highway, um, 240 kilometers, I think. Um, (laughs) uh, That's stressful for me so and the vagus nerve, what happens you can in order to slow the car you can take your foot off the gas right and that's that's what happens when you when that uh, adrenaline like and cortisol response diminish but you can also put your foot on the brake and that's the vagus the vagus nerve the vagus nerve is working for you by putting your foot on the brake by slowing the heart making the heartbeat more variable this is a good thing You breathe deeply and slowly. Everybody take a deep breath. Okay, your vagus nerve is now kicking in and working for you. And that gives you that wonderful feeling of feeling relaxed. A lot of these activities, like meditation and yoga and exercise and tai chi, involve deep breathing. And that may be part of why they're beneficial for reducing the stress response and actually boosting the immune system. At the same time when you're doing these activities, you get endorphins released in the brain, in those parts of the brain that are important in controlling pain. You get dopamine released in the brain, in those parts of the brain that are important in reward and desire. Uh, And at the same time, these, uh, these changes in the brain result in changes in those outflow pathways of nerves and other nerve chemicals and hormones that are beneficial not only for the immune system, boost the immune system, but are also good for the heart. Um, I, I hope do I have how much time do I have another five minutes okay I'm going to show a clip uh, from a television show that I did in uh, the United States uh, the science of healing where I went through my own experience of going through stress becoming ill uh, and then and then healing. this was aired on public television PBS which is sort of like your ABC <laughs> Is where they came, traveling for days over mountains and across the Mediterranean. In pain, weak, sometimes unable to walk, they came for relief, for quiet, to sleep, dream, and heal. Could the ancients, followers of Asclepius, the Greek god of healing, have known something about the body that we are just beginning to understand today? What is healing? And what roles do our emotions and brains play in the process? Have we lost our balance? Can we get it back with the science of healing? As a neuroimmunologist, I was working extremely long hours, almost never seeing the sun, fighting to convince my colleagues that stress could affect the immune system, and my mother was dying of breast cancer. lab and there was a spiral staircase connecting my father's lab to the labs of Hans Selye, who coined the word stress the idea that stress could cause illness was really ahead of its time can our emotions make us sick stress has become an unrelenting factor in our lives the American Psychological Association estimates that one-third of Americans are living with extreme stress. Ancient civilizations from China, India, and Greece embraced the premise that emotions and health were one. Worry could make you sick, and belief could make you well. But centuries later, that link began to unravel when visible proof became the foundation of the scientific method. The connection between emotions and health could not be seen and was abandoned. Today, innovative scientists using the latest technologies are reconnecting us to the wisdom of the ages and the brain's ability to help us heal. extreme stress, I had moved into a new house. In fact, the day I moved, I got the phone call to fly out to Montreal immediately, and that ended up being the last three weeks of my mother's life. I was on the flight back to, to Washington, and one of my knees swelled up on the plane, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe I bumped my knee, maybe I tripped, I couldn't really remember having done anything, but, but I just dismissed it as, as having injured myself. And then, after a few days and a few weeks, my other knees swelled up. And then my elbows and my shoulders started to ache. And, um, And here I was, a rheumatologist, an arthritis specialist. And I realized that I had inflammatory arthritis. My mother had just died, and I had come back to Washington. And I felt at that point that the last thing that I could deal with was hospital. And I was writing the beginning of my first book, and the doorbell rang, and it was my neighbors, Dean and Terry and Papa Lucille. When I first met Esther, uh, she just had moved uh, next
1: to our house here in um, downtown DC, and we decided my wife and I to go there to. Welcome here, and bring Greek, some Greek food.
2: Tzatziki, moussaka, dolmades, and they saw me writing on the computer, and they said, oh, are you a writer? And I didn't really think of myself as a writer at that time. So I said, well, I don't know, why do you ask? And they said, well, because we've always wanted a writer to stay at our cottage in Crete. So I said, I'm a writer. about 60 miles south of the Greek mainland. I'm going to stop it here because there's a limitation of time here, and I don't want to take all the time from Ian. But above the, the town, there was a temple to the Greek god of healing. As my legs began to feel stronger, I decided to follow a path up the hill behind the village and was astounded at what I found. The ruins of the sanctuary to Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. For 2400 years, this marble and stone, one of 400 healing centers scattered throughout the Mediterranean, has stood, facing the sea, announcing a refuge for the sick and afflicted. According to Homer, Asclepius, who began as a mortal with infallible medical knowledge, became revered for his healing ability and was then worshipped. As a god. When I first came upon this mosaic, I was completely amazed. I was not expecting anything like this. It looked just like a pile of rocks. And then I saw this mosaic of the wind horse Pegasus from the ancient myths. It turns out this was the treasure where valuables were stored in the temple. So the reason I show this is these ancient Greeks knew that in order to enhance healing, you had to have beautiful sweeping vistas, places where people could come to be healed with music, sleep, dreams, exercise, healthy diet, the support of friends, and art, Uh, theater. I'm just gonna show you the the temple. Uh, The temples had these wonderful theaters like this, actually constructed in the same way as this amphitheater here, uh, where people came with their friends and their family to be healed, getting their emotions out there, not thinking of their illness. Um, and we know today that when you go to a place where you believe that you will be healed, and a hospital is actually such a place if it's done right, uh, where there are uh, <laughs> I know. Actually, that's what my new book is about. It's about how you end in that place and space to support the emotions and help people heal. Um, I just want to show one one slide to show that when you are believing that something that you're receiving an active drug, these parts of the brain actually do light up that are rich in those endorphins, opioid receptors. We can do brain scans to show that. Um, I'm going to skip through the uh, the film here and show you that if you do a walking, a simple uh, meditation three times a week. 30 minutes of walking a day and a a healthy Mediterranean diet, in three months you can increase that enzyme telomerase that Elizabeth Blackburn discovered. Um, And uh, and you can, we hope that that will help to repair those ends of chromosomes. The the data isn't in yet whether you can stop that aging process, but you certainly will increase that machinery that is available to help repair the damage that comes from chronic stress. So I don't want to cut more into uh, Ian's uh, talk, but understanding the connection between the brain and the immune system, the many ways in which these two great organ systems can communicate, can help us understand how stress can make you sick, how believing in all these salubrious activities can make you well. It's also important in helping us understand how we can apply these these salubrious activities, these complementary and alternative activities to the armamentarium of medicine. We call it integrative medicine when we add meditation and tai chi, yoga, labyrinths and so on to help our bodies receive those medications that are such great advances, that have made such great advances in medicine today. And Understanding this connection between the brain and the immune system is also important in understanding how the place and space around you can help you heal and can inform hospital design uh, to reduce the negative effects of those stressful hospitals on health. I'm not going to talk about that at all this time today. That was the topic of my other talks in the last day and a half. Uh, and it's also the topic of healing spaces, the science of place and well-being. But there's a great deal of data that shows that we can design space and place around to have views of nature, to have reduction in noise, to have uh, social spaces for social support, uh, to have gardens and, uh, and other kinds of amenities. And what's good for the uh, health of the individual in, this, uh, in such spaces in such hospitals is good for the bottom line. The extra expenditure up front of about $12 it that's been calculated to have these features in the environment can be recouped by those health health benefits about $11 million in the first year. So understanding the brain-immune connection informs all of these factors about how the environment can affect our health. It's very important for health policy, for the use of uh, those salubrious activities in healing, uh, including the arts and healing and it's very important in understanding how to design hospitals and buildings and schools in a way that is healthy as well as green and it also informs how the environment can, can affect health and we now understand that health is way more than just the absence of disease and the World Health Organization has uh, has for the 21st century uh, made a statement that in fact the environment is very important in health and we need to consider that when we're making sustainable environments. We want to consider the health of the individual in those environments to reduce stress and enhance healing and prevent illness. So I will.
1: Thank you very much to Esther. And um, uh, since we will be going over time, yes, if you do need to go, um, now is a nice time to uh, sneak away. Um, Sorry. It's all right. <laughs> so now I, I am I'm very pleased. Um, now that we have. Uh, considered a little bit about how and why the arts in health or the medical humanities, the the apparently intangible, uh, humanistic aspects of healthcare and medicine might have played significant, although obviously not definitive, roles in uh, healing and attaining well-being, or might come to represent those parts of a healthcare experience that might be of most importance to many of our patients. I'd like us to, to turn from thinking about the body in general to thinking more specifically about the mind. And who is better to do that than Professor Ian Hickey? Uh, Professor Hickey, if you don't already uh, know of his biography, uh, is um, has been awarded uh, the Australian Honours Award of Member in the General Division for his services to medicine uh, in uh, the development of key national mental health strategies and research. He has for some years now been the uh, leader and director of the flagship brain and mind research institute uh, where he conducts um, very significant clinical um, and basic science uh, research programs. Uh, and uh, in fact, I think everything gets summed up by the fact that um, in 2006, the Australian Financial Review, I have to uh, write, read the comment specifically, just um, uh, included a Professor Hickey in his list of top 10 cultural influences and praised him for his leadership role in being able to direct um, national resources to mental health strategies. So welcome, please, Professor Hooke.
3: I'm very glad we're able to find a lecture theater somewhere in the University of Sydney. To accommodate the degree of public interest in this particular area. And it's a great pleasure to share the podium tonight with Esther and it's actually a great pleasure to speak at home for a change. And the University of Sydney in recent years has become my home, largely due to the work of the previous Vice-Chancellor Gavin Brown and Max Bennett in establishing something which some of you may not be familiar with down in the Camperdown, uh, opposite Camperdown Park, the new Brain and Mind Research Institute. And it's grown very quickly over the last five years to be one of the largest Institutes actually in this university, and one of the few multidisciplinary and interfaculty entities really emphasising that to deal with the issues that are at stake in health and disease in this area, one can no longer work in single, isolated entities of science or of health policy or the wider world to have any significant understanding. And we've been able to move into that space as a consequence of some forward thinking people in this university. And I'd like, in that context, to add a little Australian flavour to some of the issues that Estra has raised, as well to focus on some of the issues related specifically to disease. In doing so, uh, there's a very important and famous Chinese icon that was actually in in science or reproduced in science in January 2006 in an article about the health effects related to depression. But it particularly took my focus because Chinese physicians of many centuries ago didn't immediately leap into your head to try and find where depression was coming from. In fact, they leapt into your chest. Because what people described and what people understood at the time is that they were not sick in the sort of 19th and 20th century Western tradition of being sick in your head. They were sick everywhere and they felt that illness of depression most actually in their chest as being unwell. And there was a lot of interest at that time as to whether the cause of the problem actually lay in the chest in some way or other. It's an interesting kind of idea because I think one of the problems that we've struggled with in the areas that that Esther and myself have worked in, of trying to look at these connections between brain functioning and psychological state and health, is that we don't experience our brain in life quite the same way as we experience breathlessness or chest pain or a swollen joint that Esther was talking about. And we don't experience the stress response or the acute stress response you may recognise, but maladies otherwise that are affecting you don't feel in quite the same way when they're affecting brain function. We don't have the same kind of physiological experience, but we do have the experience of being sick in other parts of the body as a consequence of that. We've had this kind of problem of studying the brain for many years. That is, we had great trouble studying it in life. We had to wait till you died and get it out and chop it up and see what it was actually doing. As this was just showing at the end of the talk, as we can do with modern technologies now, with PET scanning and MRI scanning, we can actually look at the brain in life. And look at its changes in life during different physiological states. And even if we don't kind of experience it like the heart or the lungs, we can actually see it responding in various sets of ways. As Esther was saying at the start of that PBS production, you know, the paradigm of modern traditional medicine has been if you can't see it, it's not real. Well actually post about 1990, we can now see it in life in the brain. We don't have to chop it out and put it in a bottle. The other problem of that approach to neurosciences, which had dominated a lot of the last 100 years. was of studying a brain in a bottle, not a brain in a person, and not a person talking to another person, or a person existing in a social group, and to tend to see its connections and its chemistry as something quite in isolation from the environment it's been in. Most of this work in neuroimmunology, and neuroendocrine work over recent years, has really emphasised the extent of, in one sense, what Esther was emphasising in her talk this afternoon, the bleeding obvious we've known for over 70 years of the way the brain causes the hypothalamic pituitary axis to go off, which causes the adrenal gland to go off to reduce cortisone, the very straightforward nature of Esther was just showing the way in which the brain regulates those other key systems. As I show shortly, not so clear until more recent years, the way it regulates the immune system. Of even more importance, I'd argue, is the way in which understanding disturbances in those systems and actually natural responses systems actually feedback that this is a two-way system, that this is a loop. It's not just your response to stress affecting those systems, but the extent to which disturbances in those systems themselves feedback and affect brain function. So the extent to which psychological illnesses which may arise in the brain or be mediated by the brain cause physical illness, but also the extent to which physical illness itself and changes in these systems may cause perturbed brain function, which will include your cognitive and emotional states. You know, you can get sick in the head from being sick in the body as much as being sick in the body leads the other way around. Some of the famous kind of sets of studies in this area, in fact, done in Sydney, and I've got to say, previously done at the university I used to be part of many years ago, the University of New South Wales, the names that people will recognise around here, people like Ron Penny has been at the heart of much of the immunology in Australia, at St Vincent's, and Leslie Kylo, the previous a professor of psychiatry at the University of New South Wales, supervised a relatively young Roger Bartrop at that stage to look at actually lymphocyte function following bereavement in a very famous paper published in The Lancet in the early 1970s in looking at T-cell function particularly in men following the death of their spouse. Now the T-cell is particularly important, this work was important at two levels, a very clear demonstration that in real life, not just in the lab, that a particular psychological state that we'd all recognise, bereavement, which is one of these chronically ongoing states of distress, is actually associated in change in a key body regulatory system, the immune system, but specifically T cells within the immune system. Now T cells really regulate the cell-mediated response, the things that are immune surveillance in the body, and really play out against viral infection and surveillance against cancer. So they're the things that are sitting there constantly keeping you well. If you think you get rid of a viral illness, you don't actually get rid of it. The virus just goes quiet and can come back, as is often the case. For example, with many herpes infections, you get reactivation. Or in the cancer surveillance area, we all produce cancer cells all the time. That's not really the problem. The problem is actually turning them off and wiping them out. And if, in the sense that if T cells were affected, then you would be more likely to get things like viral infections or cancers in the long run. Or as Esther's pointed out, I think more recently, to suggest that cancer progression may go ahead. We got more interested in the 1990s in work I was doing at the University of New South Wales in the extent to which these real life, in vivo immune responses, not just immune responses in the lab, but actually cell-mediated immune responses, same things as T cell-dependent responses, were impaired in patients with severe depression. So not just in ordinary psychological states, but if you developed one of these significant psychological illnesses like severe depression or melancholia, the extent to which your T cell system, your cell-mediated system, this thing that might really matter in terms of illness may be affected. In other areas of health, we've been interested in, not only the effects on the immune system, but back through the sympathetic nervous system and others, what might be the issues related to other common diseases like coronary artery disease. And this is a particular paper with the, Medical, with the Heart Foundation, and association with Beyond Blue, really emphasised the extent to which we need to take account of not just what the immune system might be doing, but other outputs associated with abnormal states. And In this particular area, stress is in inverted commas because what the Heart Foundation emphasised, again, picking up from Esther's talks, the importance of chronic illnesses. There were certain acute factors that were associated with acute myocardial infarction, but much, much more commonly, states of depression or social isolation were actually strong risk factors for the development of coronary artery disease and preceded the coronary artery disease. They weren't simply a reaction to coronary artery disease, as these were typically diseases of younger people who went on to develop coronary artery disease. You know, in this university, we're about to get totally preoccupied with a new institute devoted to diabetes and being overweight on an ongoing basis. And just think about that as something as a lifestyle set of issues, but often rec- fail to recognise the extent to which other prior psychological symptoms, like depressive symptoms and metabolic syndromes, are actually more likely in those who've actually had depressive symptoms. So in a lot of the patient education material we use in the depression world, we talk about the importance of treatments. We talk about a lot about the medical effects of untreated depressive disorders and the way that is played out through those various body systems resulting in physical ill health, in addition to the lifestyle sets of other issues that tend to run. So in a lot of patient-based situations, we need to provide further information about how that is playing out in taking ill health further. On the other side of the coin, I've spent a long time with my colleague Andrew Lloyd and others, Dennis Wakefield at the University of New South Wales, asking the question the other way around. If the immune system produces its inflammatory products, its signalling systems, the cytokines, the extent to which they drive the onset of neuropsychiatric syndromes. So not just when you've got a neuropsychiatric syndrome do you get sick by these mechanisms. What happens if you get an infection or the inflammatory system starts to play its own games? Will you develop actually depression or another psychiatric set of illnesses? And some of the work we've done over long periods of time, we followed people with infective illnesses, particularly into post-infective and chronic fatigue syndromes. This is an article from the British Medical Journal from 2006 of our long-term studies in that area, showing clear associations between viral infections and in fact long-term ill health in key populations. Now Esther's showing you her particular diagram about the factors. I guess the summary kind of issue here is for a long time people thought about just very simple relationships between the central nervous system driving aspects of the immune system, what Esther has shown in her work and many others, is the very complicated nature, and the very complicated bi-directional nature, and that there are many systems actually playing constantly between the central nervous system and particularly the immune system, which can be triggered from either side, so you can end up with various sets of immune-related disorders that drive depression, drive cognitive impairment, drive fatigue states, or you can have a range of central nervous system-related disorders that may themselves be driving abnormal immune and other factors. When you start to think about what are the health challenges of the future, in Australia at the moment, we're in permanent election campaign. We're having trouble thinking beyond tomorrow <laughs> as to what decisions we might make. In other countries where they take a little longer between elections and the things, like in the UK, Actually, people stepped back for a little while and said, what is really going to matter to the health of countries in the future, in the developed world? Once you've got over the problems of infection and childhood diseases, what is really going to matter? And the UK government often for science, it's not for health, it's not for education, for science, said basically the most important thing is actually not going to be our mental health, it's going to be our mental wealth. It's going to be the capacity to use our cognitive and emotional resources to survive. That these are the big issues not just in health, but actually in, in socioeconomics and in health policy or economic policy for the future. At the brain science level, we know that, in a sense, using Norman Deutsch's kind of a popularization of the terms of neuroplasticity, the changing nature of this particular organ. It is not a brain in a bottle, it's a thing that's constantly reacting to many of the situations that we see, including those related to illness or toxic exposures. I'm glad to see that Law Society has a large bar now outside the new law building. I'm not sure whether it's to match the size of the bars further down the university, but we still seem to have a preoccupation in Australia to see whether we can expose ourselves to the maximum number of toxic agents during our developmental years as a piece of cultural pride. Not so good from a brain point of view. There are other things I'm glad to say, though. I'm glad to see my father's in this audience who recently, who graduated from, from the Medical Humanities course at age 81. He's older than that now and he's still here. Just to show us up a bit, you know, that staying in employment I'm sure has kept him out of a nursing home and reduced costs to the rest of the family over a long period of time. <laughs> Fortunately, the university now, we don't have to retire. A marvellous thing. Because when we know about what we should do, To stay well from a brain point of view and a body point of view together, education and employment really matter. I've never been too enthusiastic myself personally, I'm happy to recommend them to others, about the bottom two, about dietary restriction and exercise. But it's kind of interesting that the things that drive, we would associate driving physical health, also drive brain health on an ongoing basis in a responsive brain that's highly responsive to its environment. A little while ago, I had to do a talk about so-called nutraceuticals, stuff you can buy to boost your immune system or boost your health and whatever, and if you took these things, which you could order on the web, you'd look like this. (laughs) What was clear was if you behaved like this, you wouldn't need to take the nutraceuticals. <laughs> if you got outside, if you exercised, if you did things in, in pairs, if you interact with animals, if you were etc., you did things in generations, from a brain point of view and a body point of view, what's good for your brain, what's good for your body, the same kind of sets of things. And again, exercise and physical health really matters. In our own institute these days in the developing brain area, we're increasingly interested in the interactions with circadian patterns and with sleep patterns and the extent to which they are disrupted, particularly in young people in our society within the so-called dietary world, which things really matter, and the ones that we are particularly interested in relate to fish oils and to folate, to things that matter in the social world. I'm at least glad to see the law students out there socialising, that least is the issue of a social attachment, is something happening out there while other things that may not be so good are also happening. But also treating clear states associated with ill health and this issue about whether actually promoting more positive emotional states may actually have health benefits as well. And the need to do that. This is from the Mental Wealth of Nations Put it, right across the life course. There are critical periods. We tend to think about pregnancy and early childhood as being critical, but they're just one of the critical periods. There are critical periods right across the life cycle that really matter in terms of maximising this approach to health. From the developing brain point of view, it does matter what happens in childhood and the extent to which environments are enhanced for these activities matter to this overall set of health. And then this need not only to provide the obvious but also to support serious public policies that reduce risk. One of the issues from from Esther's other work if you look into it is not just about the stress response, but developing very abnormal patterns of stress response if you're a child who's exposed to things like childhood sexual abuse or other trauma that change your stress response for life and then have adverse effects on health on an ongoing basis. And they're really serious sets of interactions. So these systems that we've been talking about can themselves be made permanently abnormal by certain kinds of environmental experiences, beyond the obvious ones like alcohol killing them, by actually other psychological ones, childhood sexual abuse being perhaps the most investigated. And the extent to which we, these systems themselves actually, typo here, actually develop across the adolescent period We've been talking in an adult way as if they're all grown up and that's how you were born with them. But they're actually systems that depend on the brain itself developing through this period. And I'd love to show this to you in universities and other places, usually in high schools. You don't have a fully developed brain until you're quite into this later period. So the 17- and 18-year-olds are out there, hopefully not 17-year-olds, the 18-year-olds and others who are out there currently drinking a lot of alcohol are actually not necessarily got to the end, particularly the males, the end of their developmental period. Now developing frontal lobes matters to not only having great brains for universities, but the brain itself is then regulating all of these other systems, the circadian system, the immune system, the neuroendocrine system, and they're not at the end of necessarily their developmental phases. So you've got a developing brain also with its regulatory systems, particularly the circadian system and immune systems. So for the adolescent and early adult brains, it becomes even more important, you do the obvious, and we try to do more and more of this, through our systems, but they themselves are then interacting with those other systems, those brain-dependent systems through those periods. So we've got to give a lot of serious thought to what is really going on, not just from a brain-body point of view, but at critical periods of development. But we do tend to have a very childlike notion of development as if it's all happened in utero or in the first few years, and it isn't continuing to really go on in the environments that we're talking about. And so from a brain disease point of view, there are two great periods that matter in changing brains. One is of development, and if it goes astray, you're in big trouble. So 60% of the disability the health-related disability we see in Australia in 15 to 34-year-olds is due to mental health and substance abuse-related problems. These are problems of the developing brain. The other is that related to later life. the degenerative sets of problems. Fortunately, this particular degree, 50% of disability in those over the age of 75 being due to brain-related disorders, is actually falling and moving further to your right as we watch it, due to better public health in fact in the middle years. But you can see if you run into brain-related problems, these are also the areas in which you may run into the problems associated uh, with with therefore dysregulation of your circadian system or your immune system or your endocrine system or those other dependent dependent systems. So, What's happened really over the last 40 years, which has been so exciting, is to see not just a sort of lump of brain in a bottle, but to see a highly interactive system that we can now study of the interactions between the brain and the immune neuroendocrine circadian systems, and it's bi-directional, or better said, it's just the one system. It's only a Western medicine kind of idea that made the brain and the body separate in the first place, as if the brain was in a bottle in some other place that was not the body on an ongoing basis. And it, you know, that's a really odd idea, and in fact, not a cultural idea that's shared by many other cultures on an ongoing basis, whereas the one organism that is in interaction constantly with this environment and many other organisms on its ongoing basis, and that's what contributes to its overall homeostasis. We've come to in a mechanistic way, which is our way of approaching the science of these areas, to have a much better idea about that. So that now we have a much better idea of the physical health effects of psychological disorder. What goes wrong in depression isn't just all in your head or all, all in your brain. You end up back with the Chinese wanting to dive into people's chests to really understand the full experience of being depressed. And it's, it's, it's surprising the extent to which that has got lost in our own society. When people, we say people all the time, who say, I can't be depressed, I just feel awful. I feel so sick. And I go, no, 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 you are sick. They go, no, 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 I only think I'm sick. And I go, no, 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 you are sick. They <laughs> go, no, you don't get it. <laughs> because I know what my own story is as to how I got sick. You know, that we've replaced the physiology with the narrative. And the post-20th century, the post-Freudian world, we love our own narrative. It is the explanation of my illness, of what has happened to me. The only trouble is, the narrative's got disconnected from the physiology. And so people fail to understand their own experience of being well, or in fact of recovery from being well in many successful situations. We've almost totally discounted the mental health effects of physical ill health, of when you get unwell with cancer or you get unwell with infection, that you feel very unwell, you often feel moody, often you can't concentrate. And a lot of other work I haven't described tonight in terms of the effects of cancer treatments, of of radiotherapy and of chemotherapy contributing to fatigue, contributing to mood change on an ongoing basis. People go, "I must be a reaction to having cancer. It's not just a psychological reaction, it's the physiology of the whole system has changed as a consequence of the cancer treatment, creating great trouble for many people who have been treated for cancer on an ongoing basis or have a post-infective syndrome on an ongoing basis. And the mental health effects of physical health, mental health benefits of physical health, are now much better understood. And so the challenge for us becomes, collectively, how do we take all of this new knowledge and therefore incorporate it into not just health understandings, health care understandings, but into the wider world in which we live. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, It was fantastic um, to have this uh, other picture of the dynamic systems that we're all operating within. Okay, we have 15 minutes for for questions before we really have to wrap up tonight. And um, so I'm going to ask both our speakers to be good enough to kind of basically just kind of stand behind here. (laughs) Um, We have one chair they could lean on and share if you are particularly anxious to do that. Meredith is going to run around uh, and bring you the microphone, and I'll ask our speakers uh, To repeat the question also uh, once you have asked it, please do speak clearly. Thank you.
4: Good evening, and uh, thank you very much. Those are very insightful presentations. It was widely reported in the press uh, a few weeks ago that the the major, they said, the major contributor to long term health and well being was being in a higher socioeconomic bracket. Is there any research, any thoughts, any comments about that?
2: Well, there, there's, there's no question that that's true. Um, and there are probably many, many factors for that. Um, I don't know if you want, to, you want to comment on that as well. I mean, certainly if you're in a lower socioeconomic bracket, there's, there's very practical reasons why health is worse. You have less access to medical care, uh, maybe less informed about getting uh, certain kinds of medical care. Um, there's poor nutrition. Um, There could be isolation or there could be crowding. Uh, There's a tremendous increase in asthma in the inner cities. It could have something to do with cockroach dust. We're not exactly sure what it is. It could have something to do with stress. Stress, uh, there was, asthma has a rather checkered history in terms of uh, the, the relationship to stress. Because uh, way back about in the 1930s, it was believed that it was all in your head. As you know, as, as Ian was saying, that oh, it's just stress. Well, we know that stress can cause those adrenaline-like nerves to make the bronchial tubes constrict, but you also have to have uh, an immune and allergic reaction to the allergen. So there's many com- com- complex factors in the environment. Uh, and, and the experience of a person who's in a lower socioeconomic uh, bracket. Also lack of controllability of the environment, so there could be more stress in that
3: situation uh, if you want to comment. Uh, yes, uh, we should another professor from this university, uh, Stephen Leader from our School of Public Health, has often asked this question, he goes, well yes, it's obviously true, I and mean, all, the, all the epidemiology shows exactly that, and in Australia as much as anywhere else, but what does it mean? Is the solution therefore that we make everybody rich? <laughs> Or are there things that we can intervene with that actually matter? And the best example in Australia is reduction in smoking. So there's still a strong gradient between smoking and socioeconomic class. But as a country, we've reduced smoking rates a great deal. And then other things come into play, like increased markedly falling smoking rates amongst men, but in fact still considerable issues about young women starting smoking. We're now seeing the same thing happening with alcohol. So while there's been a strong gradient with regards to alcohol, In fact, there's a changing pattern now of binge drinking amongst young women, for example. So there are some things which are always true, like the one you've stated, but from a public health point of view, there are often many other things in terms of unpacking specific risk factors that matter. One of the things that runs with low socioeconomic environments, however, is undoubtedly highly stressful environments. Marvelously explored in the British civil service, in the Whitehall studies, which I love, you know, British civil servants in the lower bits who've got no control over anything. <laughs> Those who are more free and autonomous and freewheeling, you know, they're not stressed at all, they're having a ball. A bit like the guy flying the plane off the end of the aircraft he's having a ball. <laughs> Everybody else is not in control of anything. So in trouble. And you talk about people's controllability over their environment at all levels financial control is one of those issues that matters a lot. So exposure to many other risk factors runs, and I guess the issue becomes, therefore, which ones are one social policy and health policy can have very direct impacts on.
0: Thank you very much. Um, I'm interested to know how to then embed this into the value systems of our cultures and our societies and impress um, in educating from a very early age about how to value the brain, its contribution, getting that understanding as a way of then impacting later on how people handle the way they care for themselves. So is there anything, communication going on with having an influence?
3: Well, well, there is. And I mean, the issue of health literacy and health understanding, we've always had kids, you know, jumping up and down, doing sort of jumping jacks in school and learning about physical exercise. We used to give them, you know, milk. You know, we used to treat some nutrition, all sorts of such things. There's always been an issue about that. I think in one sense we've taken for granted that education teaches about brain development without actually ever saying so. You teach these skills that are brain dependent. So there is a movement within health literacy in this country to increasingly include issues related to brain related problems as you develop on the one hand, so the emergence of certain sets of problems in childhood or in adolescence because that's where the peak ages of onset are for the major childhood behavioural problems and, and adolescent mental health problems. But secondly teaching, in fact, stress response issues. So one of the biggest issues in this country, in the medical courses I teach and other courses, is is first things first, is for the doctors to go out themselves and learn first how to do it and then go teach others. Because, as Esther pointed out, frankly, incredibly sceptical. But in fact, there's sorts of people who panic all the time. They're very uptight, anxious people on the whole, and many have not figured out how to do it i say that about the doctors. Here in the law school we did a study of lawyers, young lawyers, who reported the highest rates of mental health problems and then reported the most aberrant way of controlling that, alcohol and drugs. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so they'd learnt, I'm not saying they learned it from their peers, I'd say they learned it from the wider society, what we would see as the culturally appropriate way in Australia of dealing with that. So there's a big issue for us about teaching as part of health literacy in schools now there's a national program called Mind Matters in Australia, supported by the Australian government's development of these of areas, teaching health literacy involving the brain in, in both in a positive way in terms of promoting better cognitive health and health, and secondarily about recognising problems when they arise. So we've just, we just scratched the surface of heading down that, that path.
2: And, and I would add to that in, in what's happening in the United States. So it's not only teaching, it's doing. So there's a movement across the United States of bringing yoga into the schools. And in training, uh, uh, sort of these positive. Uh, it's hard to teach little kids to do meditation, but they like doing yoga poses because you have to be a tree or, or a plant or an animal. Or, or, but uh, so that kind of thing can help them learn to uh, manage their anger, for example, better. Uh, being uh, they, they're bringing gardening into the schools and. Uh, you know, those kinds of salubrious activities that I talked about that are good for uh, coping with stress.
3: The two other ones just say are really important, really, the major strain contributors are in the e health area. If you go into Mood Gym, just Google Mood Gym, teach yourself online. If you've never learned how to relax, never learned how to monitor your own emotions, go onto online. And of course, the other big movement, in fact, despite all the rubbish written every day, are social networking. Young people have started to solve a lot of the social disconnection problems for themselves by using new technologies in a new society to solve different sets of problems. So we, and, and they are really important, coming back to the earlier question about socioeconomic class, about how do you overcome these things and make them very much more widely available at scale in these particular issues. And, and in Australia, we've been really challenged by that, by geography and workforce, and whatever. We some of the best innovations, in fact, in e-health-related technologies in this area. Because much can be taught and done you know, by simple instruction over the net.
4: Oh, hi. Um, yeah, thanks for your talk. Um, my question involves uh, the phenomenon of somatic metaphor, and I'm just wondering if you've come across that in your work and, and what you think, like the example of the woman who comes to the doctor with really hard, scaly skin and talks about going into her shell, or the arthritic woman um, who, who talks to the doctor about um, being stuck in the town. So there's, there's a connection between the story and the actual manifestation of the disease. So, just that, um, I guess my question is around stress is a general term, that there is a lot of curious and spooky connections between the body and the brain. Um.
2: So, so that, that's a very interesting question, and it, it is particularly relevant across cultures um, and different languages. So, I'll tell a story that the um, uh, Commissioner of Health for the New, for New York State, uh, Antonia Novello, told me uh, right after 9-11. Uh, she said that um, at the hospitals in New York City, uh, near Ground Zero, they were getting a lot of Hispanic women coming to emergency rooms saying Corazon, Corazon. Corazon means heart. And they were being sent to cardiologists to treat their heart disease. But in fact, in Spanish, when you say Corazon, you mean grief, uh, pain, the pain of depression. So I actually thought of that when you were showing that, that slide about the, the Chinese doctors looking at the chest. You feel it in your chest, um, in in the balance within. In my first book, I actually I, I talk about that of all. There's so many words uh, that come from the roots or Greek or Latin uh, for describing sanguine, uh, you know, describing the emotions. Uh, uh, somebody is melancholy. It means black bile. Uh, so they come from these deep uh, roots in our culture, and they may be different in other cultures. It would be actually, I'd be interested to hear from you about the uh, indigenous people here, how how you deal with that sort of cross-cultural uh, description of uh, emotional problems. But I'm sure it does uh, affect how we how we think about it. Um, I guess
4: I'm um, also like.
2: Well, I think we need to have. You need to use the microphone.
4: Also, the idea that um, the story is being manifested in the body. So it's not only the words that are chosen, but the story, like even unconsciously, it's happening and the words being used unconsciously. So just that, that stress seems like a very, in a way, generic term for, um, like, uh, there's a whole kind of subtle realm there to be explored.
3: Well, I think it's a, there's a really important point that you're raising, and, and I think it's got to do with the way language is then transacted in our various health systems. Who's listening to what? <laughs> okay, So in the, in the area I know the most about cross-culture in the fatigue area, people use that expression right across all cultures. So it's not unique to Asian cultures or South American cultures. Or, In fact, the highest rate in the world is in Manchester in the UK. <laughs> but there is no simple meaning in the medical sense in primary care for English-trained doctors to respond to that. It's got a different meaning. A colleague of mine singling, who works in Hong Kong. It immensely means the person's experience of their whole body. So the person is having that experience, whether it's hard skin or it's fatigue. So they are actually doing what people have always done. And I'd say prior to what happened in the early 20th century in Europe, when people started to attach psychological constructs to those things, they are literally describing the physical experience of being unwell in that way. Then what they're doing, which is what, if you you talk to my colleagues singly, happens in their fatigue clinics, people will start to tell you the whole story that surrounds that and their interpretation of their current sets of life circumstances, like Esther was just telling about her arthritis in the context of her mother's death. You know, they'll tell you the context and expect you to understand the whole context, not to, so what happens in our transactions is we tend to cut out the rest of the story pretty quickly, so it gets dismissed, you're not ill. Your hard skin, your fatigue, whatever else, your arthritis even, unless you can show me the swollen joint, doesn't exist. Right? And so we cut out the rest of the story as being irrelevant. Now, what happens in our culture is most of the so-called alternative therapists or complementary therapists pick up the story. Right? They're actually listening to the story. Most of our primary care thing is not about the story. It's about is there a test or a specific pathology that goes with that thing. And so what we have in Australia is a whole other industry going on where people are trying to understand the whole story the person is telling them and a traditional primary care system, which is not, and most of our specialised medical system, which is not, which is trying to isolate the problem to the knee, or the heart, or the chest, or the specific organ in which it's believed the pathology arises. So, I think the issue is another, just slightly, all, all humans have another very important psychological construct, which is effort after meaning. We all have explanations. The best one is to go into coronary care units on a Monday morning and ask all the blokes with heart attacks why they are there. If you ask the cardiologist why they're there, it's all because of the block in their left-hand descending artery, right? That is the reason. If you ask them, they tell you a whole range of stories. Well, my daughter got married on the weekend and I really don't like my son-in-law and it came to the point in the middle of the speech, I got <laughs> chest pain. Now, both sets of stories are true. <laughs> both sets of stories explain what is going on. But humans do, do, in relation to their own experiences, have explanations. And I think the thing is, within those explanations are all sorts of truths. Some of which we understand very well, others of which we don't understand or we choose not to understand because we don't quite get it. Whereas there are all sorts of people in the health world more broadly who are trying to understand out of those individual narratives, as people try to explain their situation, what are, the, what are the kernels of truth in that? What are the bits that we need to understand to understand this, this experience better? I'm not to
2: stick on this one question, but it is such a rich question. and has so many aspects to it. Um, There's a method called the Pennebaker Method after a professor in Texas, Pennebaker, uh, who uh, asked patients, people, to write about a stressful or painful experience in an emotional way or stripped of emotion, just very, um, uh, you know, straightforward bullet points. And these people had arthritis or uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis or asthma. The study was done in uh, Stony Brook by Arthur Arthur Stone, actually. Uh, state and uh, he found that people who wrote about their stressful experience in an emotional way and kind of got it out there on the table um, had a measurable reduction in arthritis (coughs) symptoms if they had arthritis or in asthma symptoms and and measurable changes in the physical uh, measures of asthma Uh, If they got that emotional story out in an emotional way, rather than if they stripped it of emotion. So there's something about, and that may be what's happening during the process of psychotherapy. It may be what's happening when you go to confession. You know, the the cultures all over the world have evolved ways of dealing with stress, dealing with disease. And we shouldn't dismiss how these things work and that they in fact do work. So then we should take another question. (laughs)
0: Uh, thank you, Dr. Steinberg and Professor Hickey. Um, I think following on that, I just want to ask a question about the placebo effect, which you mentioned as um, a salubrious activity. Um, because in uh, medical field and medical research, it's long been satirized as you know, something uh, as ineffective as being bogus or a sham. Um, I would like to ask both of your views on it. And um, if it is effective, um, how do we actually uh, maximize uh, its usefulness? Thank you.
2: So thank you. The, the question is about the placebo effect and how do we maximize its usefulness and whether we think it's a sham. Uh, absolutely, it's not a sham. It's the brain's own healing mechanism. Uh, before we had uh, surgery and uh, pharmaceuticals and all the great advances that we have in modern medicine, uh, the animals in the wild get sick and they heal. And they heal not only because their immune systems do the job of healing, but because their brains also help that healing process through all those neurochemicals and pathways and brain hormones and so on that that we both talked about. So, you know, there's a wealth of evidence to show that the placebo effect is a very real effect. The power of belief in healing, the power of expectation in healing. Um, unfortunately, as you said, the word placebo is usually preceded by a four-letter word, just. Oh, it's just the placebo effect. It's, it's just in your head. Well, it is in your head, but it's in your head in those parts of the brain that control, that reduce the stress response, in the parts of the brain that enhance those endorphin anti-pain molecules, that enhance those dopamine molecules of desire and reward. So there are very important changes in the brain during the placebo effect which change those outflow pathways of the brain, kick in the vagus nerve, which boosts the immune system and help your body heal, reduce those stress hormones and nerve chemicals and uh, reduce the negative effects of of, uh, stress on the body. So the placebo effect is a very powerful effect and it's not a sham. So, um, you know, if you walk into a doctor's office and you believe that that doctor is going to help you, there is right away a benefit of the placebo effect. Um, so it doesn't have to be a sham, it's just expectation. And we can, we can optimise it, in, in, at least in part, by not dismissing it and, and admitting that it's real.
3: Right? It's just a really dumb name. Because right? <laughs> all the nonspecific treatment effects, as to go to Marv's example earlier on, if we were to do a trial where we chopped off your leg, right? And we came back later on and then to try to do a placebo-controlled trial, giving you a pill versus another pill, of the leg growing back, no effect. Okay. However, if we were to look at the pain associated with losing your leg, what we see is a completely different thing. That is, we, can do, we know a whole lot of non-specific treatment things, a whole lot of things in general, which are brain-dependent, which will contribute to reducing pain associated with that amputation. Now, if you're a smart doctor or a smart healthcare professional, you do everything you can to maximise that effect in the real patients you treat every day. In fact, I think I'll move my own practice to Crete shortly. You know, I can see myself being a very effective psychiatrist sitting in Crete. <laughs> and I can imagine most of my patients would get considerably better than they do sometimes when I'm, or I've been in Campbelltown today. Not so well, perhaps, compared with it. That is maximised. That's being smart about medicine, which traditional healers have always been, to maximise the non-specific effects of treatment, which are genuine. And now, where it is relevant that the brain regulate those effects, for example, in pain or fatigue or depression or headache and a whole range of areas, where it is relevant, there will be an effect that you can maximise. And then what we're always looking for in medicine is the bit that goes the next 10 yards. What is the specific treatment effect beyond the non-specific treatment effect? And it is actually in people who participate in treatment. The thing that drives me completely spare in my own area is people who equate placebo effects with no treatment or non-participation treatment. I don't need to get treated because that treatment is no better than placebo. Placebo is all about participating in healing. There is no placebo effect sitting at home doing nothing. You know, it's not the same thing at all. So it's all about the, the effects which we understand more and more about of the process of participation in healing, the non-specific effects for which we then, in modern medicine, try to find additional specific effects to add on to have extra effect on an ongoing basis. A real, I don't know if you've ever seen a really good doctor in your life or gone to a really good hospital. They're the ones that get really good results right? with the same treatments. They actually get better results. More people get well. So there's nothing sham about it. It's about being smart about the delivery of healthcare.
2: Well, and also, uh, just to to emphasize that point that you made, uh, placebo or the expectation that uh, anything will heal you is not a passive absence of brain activity, just like meditation is not an absence of brain activity. There's an actually an active uh, change in the brain during these states uh, of belief, of expectation. Uh, of learned associations between whether you get a pill or whether you see a doctor or whether you walk into a certain place that's soothing and calming. There are learned associations that turn on those parts of the brain that are beneficial to health. So it's not a passive state, it's a very real active state. Last question. Uh, Thank you very much for a very nice lecture. There is no doubt in science that anxiety has a uh, genetical susceptibility and depression has a genetical susceptibility. And now the ability to be stressed and the ability to deal with stress, they both have genetical susceptibility. And whatever we do sometimes, it's very hard to change your genetical susceptibility deeply. You can probably change the superficial layer. I wonder what's your opinion about that. Well, it's a great question, and it's how I got into this area in the first place. So I'm a a rheumatologist. I'm trained as an arthritis specialist. And you might ask what is an arthritis specialist doing, uh, studying uh, emotions and stress and belief and wellness and place and space and health. And when I I was, back in 1989, when I discovered that the part of the brain that controls the stress response is important in arthritis, I was studying two strains of rats. One that developed arthritis when exposed to all sorts of, uh, you know, things in the environment, bits and pieces of bacteria. Another strain of rats that was very resistant to getting arthritis in response to the same triggers. And I discovered that these two strains of rats had very different brain hormonal stress response. The ones that got arthritis had a blunted hormonal stress response. The ones that didn't had a very hyper-responsiveness to stress. And they behaved differently in response to stress. Uh, we had the laid-back California rats and the type A New York rats. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what the students named them. I don't know what the equivalent is here. I, I don't know. Maybe it's all laid-back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> these genetically bred strains of rats, that there was a difference in behaviors in response to stress, in hormonal responses to stress, and in susceptibility to these inflammatory diseases. These were extremes of rats. So the first studies we did were genetic studies, and we found that there were 20 different genes on 15 different chromosomes that determine susceptibility to arthritis in these rats, and some of them mapped onto those stress hormone uh, genes. The important thing is that each of those genes only contributes about 35% to the final uh, variability or the final expression of that disease. Uh, That's the case for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, any of these complex diseases that we get. Arthritis, there are many genes, each with small effect. And usually it's only about 35 or 40% that comes from your genes. That's bad news for geneticists because it means it's going to be hard to find the genes that contribute to these diseases. It's good news for the rest of us because it means that 60% of your susceptibility to these conditions comes from environmental factors. And you can just name it. There are thousands of environmental factors that could be contributing to an individual's susceptibility to these kinds of diseases. And if you inherit all 20, if you're one of those rats that inherits all 20 of the genes that makes you susceptible to arthritis, the environment isn't going to contribute a whole lot. If you inherit two, you're going to be resistant, and also the environment isn't going to contribute a whole lot. But if you inherit 10, then the environment and factors like stress and all the kinds of things you might be exposed to can trip you over into getting a disease. When I talked in that film clip about my arthritis and stress, I obviously have the genes to develop arthritis. There's a lot of different kinds of immune diseases in my family. I think it was not at all a coincidence that I developed it at the moment in time when I developed it because I was exposed to chronic stress and I was depleted of these uh, hormones that otherwise should have protected me. Uh, so there are factors that determine the timing of when you get the disease and whether you get the disease. And it's always a combination of genes and environment. And there's another thing, and you mentioned this is early development. And and I'll leave leave you to discuss this in more detail, but in these rats, we found that the maternal pup interaction determined in part the adult set point of the stress response. So the stress response is plastic. Uh, It's plastic because it changes in uh, early development, as uh, Ian mentioned. It can change to a certain extent in adulthood by uh, uh, engaging in these kinds of salubrious activities. So there's a whole range of factors that contribute to the set point of your stress response, whether you're hyper-stressable or less or, or more sanguine, uh, and whether, whether or not these uh, factors will interact and how much they'll interact with the genes that predispose you to various diseases. I'll let you talk just, about- Just very it.
3: briefly, the point you're making, I think is a point we all need to understand it's not really well discussed. Often we're talking at a population level, talking about whole groups of people, or population genetics. 30% of the variance is genetic for anxiety and depression, 60%. We're talking about population averages. It doesn't necessarily tell you as an individual where you lie within that average. So it's like saying we're all five foot nine. Right? We're not. Some of us are shorter and taller. That's the average of the particular thing and so in individuals you see this much obviously you know in certain families that have strong loadings for cancer or have strong loadings for other disease the, the genetics runs much more strongly and therefore the environmental factors play less of a role of all the people who get fat only some get diabetes of all the people who smoke only some get lung cancer individual variation is big so what we see unfortunately i think in some areas is people believe they have caused their own cancer because of stress even we, we have a set of studies associated with, in Australia with high risk breast cancer families who have incredibly high rates of breast cancer. But yet some of those women will start to believe they have caused their own cancer because of their stress when the genetic load in their family is extremely high. So when we're talking in general health terms, we're talking in averages and generalities. How that works out for each of us in our own life is where what you'll hear much more discussed in the US becomes the issue of personalised medicine. There's, an issue, there's it becomes an issue we haven't quite got to of understanding where your own genome is at what stage of life you are, and then how you interact with the environment. We aren't quite there yet.
2: I want to just emphasize, and I know we have to stop, but I think you're 100% right. If you can't fix it, if you can't control your stress response, it's not your fault. You should not feel guilty. Uh, You know, if you go to uh, a gym and you want to train up and get really well trained, you get a, a coach to help you train. If you're unable to fix your stress response on your own, you need to go to a coach, to a, a, a healthcare expert uh, who knows how to address and handle these conditions. If you have clinical depression where the stress response is stuck in the on position, it's a biological condition, it's an imbalance of, of many different uh, nerve chemicals in the brain, you can't necessarily fix it on your own. It's like expecting to go to, if you have appendicitis, Instead of going to the surgeon to get your appendix out, taking your appendix out yourself. You can't do it. So if you can't fix it on your own, it's your biology. Don't don't feel bad about yourself. Don't feel guilty. Get support. Get help.